If you will, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Philippians in chapter 4. As Blake is our full-time evangelist here, and the rest of us kind of rotate between preaching or teaching, it is my turn this week, and being the great communicator that I am, when I texted Richard, I said, standing firm, the stuff that Paul talks about at the, uh, in the book of Philippians chapter 4. I really meant it was like the seven Beatitudes, as some refer to it, but it is generally going to be an exposition of the last chapter of Philippians. Our living and learning goal for this year comes from Philippians chapter 2 in verses 10 through 12. Our living goal is to shine as lights in this world, and our learning goal is to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Keeping in mind that we have his word. Philippians 4 begins, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my crown and joy, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, in this way. In what way does he mean? Well, of course, therefore refers us back to something that he has said prior. And in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and those who, and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. He is talking about walking and following in accordance with the pattern that we have through Paul and the other apostles. Paul has some other things to say on this. And as this, this is a survey of chapter 4, this, I'm going to be all over the place in the Bible. You can turn there if you want to. If I want you to turn to a specific place, I will certainly tell you. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 13 through 15, the Apostle Paul says, But we should give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel, that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you have been taught by word or by letter from us. That is the apostles. He said to stand firm in the word of the apostles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and verse 7, Paul has even more to say about the word. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Stand firm in the word, and the word doesn't change. Paul teaches the same word to every church. There is a truth and a word that Paul has taught. And finally, in 1 Peter 5, Peter has something to say on the subject, and he says, Through Sylvanus... Our faithful brother, or so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So what is the true grace of God? Ephesians 2.8 says that we are saved by grace through faith. And the gospel is the grace of God. 
And 1 Peter, if you read that entire book, will give us the entire gospel of Jesus Christ in, in Peter's words. So verse 2 of Philippians chapter 4, he urges Yodia and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. And harmony is, in essence, unity. And Paul has spoken of the unity that he's encouraging the Philippians to have, both in chapter 1, verse 27, and in chapter 2, verses 2. And then he goes on to explain in chapter 2 exactly how this unity is to be achieved. In chapter 2, picking up in verse 3 of the book of Philippians, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with the humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, and do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but for the interest of the others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Jesus Christ, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made into the likeness of men. In verse 3, Paul says, Indeed, true companion." This term, true companion, is sandwiched in between a couple of personal names. And some have suggested that this Greek word, sudzugos, is actually used as a surname, exactly the same way that Barnabas is used as a surname. Barnabas means the son of encouragement, which we learn from Acts chapter 4, verse 36. So if encouragement had a son, it would be someone like Barnabas. And if you think about the idea of the Greek word zugos, it means yokemate, or fellow bearer of a yoke. So someone who would be there to help others, to be with others, to encourage others. Exactly what Barnabas is known for the son of encouragement in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, when Paul had been converted, takes Paul and brings him to the apostles at Jerusalem and say, I heard him speak in the name of the Lord over in Antioch, and he was telling the truth, and he introduces him because they were all afraid of him. And then he seeks Paul out in Acts chapter 11. The church at Antioch is growing like crazy, and he goes and he finds Paul, knowing the great work that Paul has done to come, have Paul come and help him. And he worked with Paul. The Holy Spirit calls Barnabas and Paul to be sent on the missionary journey. So they went off on the missionary journey. Then he let Paul down. Galatians chapter 2 says that when Peter and the other men from James went away from the Gentiles and started congregating just as the Hebrews, just as the Jews, were taken away from the true nature of the, all the kingdoms, all the nations being brought together into Christianity, and Barnabas was carried away with them. And I've heard people just bemoan the fact that Barnabas was such a good man and how, oh, it's so disappointing how he could be carried away into this. But indeed he was, as we all are, coming up short every once and again at least on our 
striving to be the Christians we should be. Barnabas argued with Paul. In chapter 15 of the book of Acts, they argued over the second missionary journey. Paul didn't want to take John Mark with him because he had left the first missionary journey and had gone back to Jerusalem. But his nephew, Barnabas' nephew, was John Mark. And he said, no, he'll do better. Take him with us. And Paul said, no, he left the work. I don't want him here with this work. He's not going to be with us the whole time. But they didn't argue over the word. They argued over God's work and the man. They didn't have a doctrinal disagreement. They had a disagreement over how to get the doctrine, the gospel, out to the people. Finally, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6, Paul says, Are not Barnabas and I the only ones who don't have the right not to work? And this is a long time after the argument. So Paul and Barnabas are reunited and working together again. And this is exactly how unity is supposed to work. When we disagree, we have to learn to get through our disagreements and come to a sound conclusion and understand what the Word of God says and agree on that. And I just want to make a point on Mark, and that is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and verse 11, one of the last things that's ever recorded <coughs> that Paul wrote before his death was he tells Timothy, go get John Mark and bring him to me. He will be important to me. So there was a reconciliation there. Mark had gone on and had become a good, strong worker for the Lord. In verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to come back to this in just a minute. But again, I will say, rejoice. Be gentle. Be gentle in spirit. And let your gentle spirit be known to all men, for the Lord is near. Turn with me, if you will, over to Jeremiah chapter 11. I want to pick up in verse 18 of the chapter 11 of Jeremiah. Moreover, the Lord made it known to me, and I knew it. And then you showed me their deeds. But I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know that they had devised plots against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. These people were out to kill Jeremiah and his gentle spirit. But look back at what he says in chapter 11, verse 16. He says to the people who wanted to kill him, this is just prior to that death threat being revealed, the Lord has called your name a green olive tree, beautiful in fruit and form. The imagery in that is delightful. A young green olive tree, pretty with delightful fruit. And this is what the Lord has called Israel. But yet, with the noise of great tumult, 
He has kindled a fire upon it. He has, its branches are worthless. Why this beautiful, green, fruitful tree has been condemned to fire? Turn back a page or two to chapter 7 of Jeremiah, and we'll pick up in verse 8. Behold, excuse me, I'll pick up in verse 10, verse 15. Let me be sure I've got this right, excuse me. Yes, okay, verse 8. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. What is going on here? What deceptive words are they trusting in? Now, back to verse 4. Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For it is truly, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in this land that I gave you and your fathers forever and ever. So what's going on here? They're trusting in the temple of the Lord. They're not trusting in the Lord himself. They're thinking, we've got the temple. There's no way God's going to destroy Jerusalem. That's where his temple is. And so what are they doing? They're going out and they're sacrificing to Baal. And then they come back to the temple and say, we're forgiven. Look at verse 9. Will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery? Will you swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered that you may do abominations, that you may sin. They're calling on the name of the Lord, forgive us so we can go sin some more. Jeremiah prays for these people. He prays for these people until verse 20 of chapter 11. If you look back at verse 14 in chapter 11, God tells Jeremiah, Do not pray for these people, nor lift up a cry or a prayer for them. I will not listen, because they call to me because of their disaster. He tells him, Don't pray to them. It implies he was praying to them, for them, to him, for them. And then in verse 20, what does he say? O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tries the feelings in the heart, let me see your vengeance, your vengeance on them. For to you I have committed my cause. He's saying destroy these people. Let me see you destroy them. He's not calling on his own vengeance. He's calling on the Lord's vengeance to take care of these people. Paul is often accused of behaving badly, that he is being vicious towards people and he's not being gentle with his rebukes. But Paul was an apostle of the Lord and had the authority 
to act like this. Paul was stern under death threats until chapter 13 of Acts when he tells the Jews, you have considered yourself unworthy of eternal life. We will see this also. But they don't call on themselves to judge these people unworthy of eternal life. They call upon the Lord to judge Jeremiah and Paul. I happened to be downtown yesterday, right at 4 o'clock, when all the people were gathering around Piedmont Park, and I was trying to drive out of there, and it was perplexing to watch the party attitude and everybody dancing in the streets and with no concerns other than it was Friday afternoon and it was party time. And I drove on out of there on my way with just the thought of how do you reach to people like this knowing there would be very few who would be concerned about the word of the Lord, but they were more concerned with the things of this world and considered themselves unworthy of eternal life. Verse 6 says, be calm and prayerful. Verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything let your request be known. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. I was reminded of 1 Timothy 4, and he says, in 1st Timothy first of all and this is prayer first of all I urge you that entreaties and prayers and supplications and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity for this is good and acceptable in the sight of our Lord who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We've seen Paul and Jeremiah under persecution from the leaders around them, not always calm, sometimes calling for vindication, but they do have the peace that passes comprehension that he mentions in verse 7. At the riot in Ephesus that so changed Paul's life, in my estimation, he was willing to go back in to a riotous crowd and try to explain to them the Word of God. But his friends, the Roman governors, the, the Asiarchs, kept him from going in there. It would have been certain death for Paul at that point. We know we're going to see things like this ourselves because 2 Timothy <coughs> 2 and verse 13 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Jesus Christ will be persecuted but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and, can be, and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, so that from your childhood you have known from the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. So let us let the peace that passes all comprehensions, guard our hearts and our minds in Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to back up 
to verse 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Here in verse 7, there in verse 4, in verse 2, in verse 1, in the Lord, in Christ Jesus, in 2.29, in 2.1. And he even starts off the entire letter by saying, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. What does he mean in Christ Jesus? Please turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. There are many who will be contentious about this passage. I even heard one man say, that's not what it means. And my friend said, but that's what it says. Last week I defined interpretation. I'm going to define it one more time because I think it's important. The first definition of interpretation is to explain, to present in an understandable manner. The second definition of interpretation is to conceive according to judgment or belief or circumstances. There are two ways to interpret. I'm going to pick up in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 and read down to verse 11. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So, even consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Verse 3, he says, Do you not know? The implication is, you certainly know this. He's saying to the Romans that he's writing to, you know this already, that you have been baptized into Christ and into a new life in verse 4 and into the resurrection in verse 5. And Galatians 3.27 clearly states that we have, those of you who have been baptized into Christ are clothed with Christ. But wait, in verse 26 of the third chapter of Galatians, he says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Some will claim it's a work. I'll ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 12. I'll grant you, baptism is faith. Or salvation is by faith. 
And salvation, baptism is a work. Look at 2 and verse 12. And having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So yes, baptism is a work. It's the work of God that forgives our sins and that gives us salvation. 1 Peter 3.21 I said a minute ago, Peter is the gospel. 1 Peter 3.21 clearly states, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's plain Bible teaching. Baptism now saves us. In Acts 16.22, Ananias, Paul tells that Ananias told him to get up and go be baptized for the forgiveness of his sin. Some will turn to John and say, well, he says he's faithful and righteous and will forgive us of our sins if we confess them. Yes, this is true, but John is also writing to his little children who are already Christians, who are already baptized into Christ. Finally, back in Philippians chapter 4, Brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. I find this very difficult. Dwelling on the great things, the wonderful things, the things that are excellent, is difficult for me. There's always something to be negative about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul tells the Corinthians that love believes all things, that love hopes all things, that love endures all things. It's hard to believe in people, to love people, to endure people and love them like we should. It's difficult to dwell on the excellence, to tell of his excellent glories. 2 Corinthians 10.5 tells us to bring every thought, every thought, into the obedience of Jesus Christ. Another very, very difficult thought. But we need to wrap our minds around these things. We need to bring them into our hearts. And we need to learn to praise and tell. We need to conceive these things. We need to believe these things. We need to achieve these things. Finally, last point, Paul gives thanks for their gift. It's not just a receiving of the gift, but how we should view all understanding and our reaction to his excellent word. I'm thankful for forgiveness. I'm thankful for cleansing. Paul was thankful for the gift. It wasn't just the joy of the gift. It's not just the joy of receiving a cleansing. But it's thankfulness 
and joyousness for the giver, that they were able to have that gift and give it. Paul, yes, received relief for his personal afflictions. And yes, we receive forgiveness of sin. Paul was joyous to the Philippians. And we know that our salvation is to the glory of Christ crucified. And yes, hallelujah to that salvation in the big picture. The blessings of love for the Philippians and salvation for us is certainly not to attain additional gifts for Paul from the Philippians or that I would desire to sin again and need another cleansing. Yes, that will happen, but that should not be my desire. But it is that we should all share in Christ and in his love. I thank you for your time this morning. If you haven't considered what it means to be in Christ, or that you might have sinned and come short of his glory, consider those things while we stand and sing.